Hello and welcome to part two of the Herald Scotland for the week ending the 24th of April 2020. Normally we are recording from the Bishop Riggs Media Centre in Crow Hill Road, but currently our volunteers are in their home across West Central Scotland. So please bear with us with the sound quality. Also, if you wish to find out more about our service and didn't listen to part one, visit www qandreview.com that's c-u-e-a-n-d-r-e-v-i-e-w also you can tweet us at that address or follow our facebook or instagram pages you're listening to the herald scotland recorded thursday 23rd of april 2020 opinion by alison rowett senior politics and features writer blistering start for starmer at virtual prime minister's questions Strange things you never thought would come to pass. Queuing to enter a supermarket, being thrilled by the sight of the bin lorry arriving, making your own surgical mask. But the oddest thing of all, being glad to see politicians. Bless them everyone, there they sat in the Commons chamber, the carpet marked with black and yellow hazard tape as a guide to social distancing. Benches blocked off with plywood, Parliament looking even more like one giant building site. The Scottish Parliament, modern and therefore more adaptable, was slightly smarter when it returned on Tuesday after recess. Fifty seats had been removed from the chamber, making the place look even airier. At Westminster yesterday, the first virtual Prime Minister's questions, or VPMQs if you must, took place. With the PM convalescing at Chequers, the new Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, making his debut, and the leader of the SNP in the Commons beaming in from his constituency of Ross, Skye and Lochaber, it was a dear diary day. Sir Keir and Dominic Raab, First Secretary of State and Foreign Secretary, standing in for Boris Johnson, began by jabbing politely at each other like the lawyers they are. The Labour leader asked about the government's continuing failure to get anywhere near its own target of 100,000 tests a day. Mr Rabb tried to turn the focus on the number of tests that could be done rather than how many were being carried out. Sir Keir, thinking on his feet, picked up on this and came right back at the First Secretary of State. Just for a second, Mr Rabb looked rattled. This was the cut and thrust of parliamentary democracy as it should be. So Keir also managed to secure that all-important soundbite for social media, in this case about the government being slow into lockdown, slow on testing, slow on protective equipment. There were obvious problems, the lack of atmosphere most of all. The place was almost as empty as the average high street. Technical glitches occurred. David Mundell, we've been unable to connect, announced the speaker in sombre tones. Was the computer switched on, Mr M? Conservative MP Peter Bowen was cut off midway through a rant on banks. SNP leader Ian Blackford used the occasion to punt the idea of a universal basic income. Perhaps not the most pressing concern of the day. Sir Keir missed a trick in not asking the Foreign Secretary about the UK's involvement, or lack of it, in EU schemes to procure ventilators and protective equipment. It was a Foreign Office official, after all, 
who told a Commons committee it had been a political decision not to take part, though he later said there had been a misunderstanding. Too messy for Sakir to raise, or did it not fit in with his constructive opposition approach? PMQs were a little rough round the edges then, but it will get better. The crucial thing is that MPs and MSPs are back at work. They have been missed. Recent months have been a stress test for democracy as much as they have been for the operation of the NHS. Cracks have begun to show, and nowhere more so than in holding government to account. But we have the daily 5pm briefings at number 10, do we not? No Scottish 6, but here is your Downing Street 5. To think the British press used to envy their American counterparts and the daily White House briefings on camera. So much more accountability and transparency. If only we could have our very own CJ Craig from the West Wing instead of an anonymous bod who goes by the name of a Downing Street spokesperson. Except it has not worked out like that. The White House pressers are still going strong and in their own way are providing a vital insight into a presidency. Americans are at once enthralled and appalled by their commander-in-chief. Back in Downing Street, meanwhile, we continue to slog through the motions of the five o'clock briefing. Up pops the Minister of the Day, followed by the experts. After the now ritual statement and reading of the graphs, we switch to the screen for journalists to ask questions that are routinely swerved. Much of the problem is caused by journalists not being in the room. As any interviewer will tell you, there is a world of difference between talking to someone in person and speaking to them at one remove. In person, you can look them in the eye, read the responses and adapt the questioning. An interview conducted via video call is almost as bad as one by phone. Worse, possibly, because landlines tend not to have technical hitches. If it is possible for people to be in the same place in the Commons, at Holyrood and in the White House briefing room, why can't a small band of journalists take it in turns to attend the Downing Street press conference in person? Politicians have a particular and crucial role to play when it comes to holding the executive to account. It is easy to sneer at your average backbencher or committee. What do they do all day? Why do they take so long to produce a report? How much more effective, as we saw during Brexit, to go through the courts if you want something done. Yet the courts are not plugged into the community in the same way as politicians. MPs and MSPs see and hear what is happening on the ground, and in some instances they are better placed to get answers. The role as advocates will become even more important as the months go by and life becomes harder for people. Many citizens are going to be coming into contact with the state as never before and they will need help from those who know their way around. From the expenses scandal to Brexit, recent decades have not been the best of times for politicians. Now they have a chance to redeem themselves. There is a sense of drift in the country at the moment. People are stunned, fearful of what is coming next. While no one has all the answers, it is time to start asking more questions with greater urgency, and politicians have a frontline role to play in that. 
This is a test democracy cannot fail. You're listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded Wednesday the 22nd of April 2020. Opinion by Rosemary Goring. Captain Tom and teenage carer Kia are surely the best of Britain. Until recently, A&E staff might reasonably have viewed motorcyclists as their bête noire. Apart from bank holiday DIY enthusiasts sawing off fingers rather than planks, no other activity carries a higher risk of leading to a hospital gurney. Signs on country roads plead with motorcyclists to kill their speed, not themselves. Even so, there is a daredevil temperament within the fraternity that defies warnings. The thrill, clearly, is to dice with death. And when the roll goes against them, A&E can stitch, pin and plaster the damaged parts back together. Now, however, this sport has found its hero, as has the NHS and the rest of us. Footage of motorcycling racer Captain Tom Moore doing laps of his Bedfordshire garden with the help of a walking frame offered a rare and touching glimmer of cheer amid otherwise overwhelming reports of misery. Learning of this former soldier's passion for motorcycling allowed well-wishers to understand a little of the man who has been taken to the country's heart. He might be a good age, but that has not deterred him. The sight of him turning his garden into another racing circuit was, to use a hackney-eyed word, inspirational. In this context, awesome takes on its original meaning. Who by now doesn't know the story? Captain Tom Moore, who had skin cancer treatment and a hip replacement in recent years, set out to walk 100 times around his 82-foot garden by his 100th birthday on the 30th of April. His aim was to raise £1,000 for the NHS. At the time of writing, over £27 million has been donated. And Captain Tom has said, with his medals glinting in the sunshine, his Yorkshire voice still firm, that so long as people continue to donate, he will carry on walking. His is the highest sum ever raised by a single individual on the Just Giving platform, but that record is of little interest compared with the man and the chord he has struck. The captain's idea was to thank the NHS for the care it gave him, and in the process play his part during this crisis. Explaining his motivation, he said, We're a little bit like having a war at the moment, but the doctors and the nurses, they're all on the front line, and all of us behind, we've got to supply them and keep them going with everything that they need, so that they can do their jobs even better than they're doing now. It is humbling to see a veteran of the battlefield pay tribute to those who are also facing potentially life-threatening danger whenever they clock in. In Moore's words, they're all so brave because every morning or every night they're putting themselves into harm's way. Like those of his age who survived active service or lived through the war, this army officer knows the meaning of courage and of fear. Enlisting in the 8th Battalion Duke of Wellington's Regiment in 1939, he served in India and Burma and later in Japan. Originally from Keithley in the West Riding, he is widowed and lives with one of his daughters and her family. None beyond his friends and family can claim to know him well, but from what we have seen of him, 
it's fair to say that Captain Tom represents everything the country most needs right now. For a man of his years to take on a gruelling physical challenge is in itself impressive, when it is the elderly who are bearing the brunt of the COVID-19 calamity, his dignified, encouraging, self-deprecating manner is a reminder of the cruelty of losing the aged in such numbers. That he remains fit and well is like seeing a lighthouse flash across a stormy, fog-bound sea. It is also immensely heartening to hear from a sector of the population that, for the moment, has been virtually silenced and made invisible as they're forced to stay behind doors and out of sight. Nor is the captain alone in showing resilience and fortitude and giving us a wider perspective. A fellow veteran from the Second World War has also made headlines, albeit in very different circumstances. 94-year-old Ken Bembo, who lives in a care home in Preston, was given a cushion printed with a photo of his late wife Ava so he could keep her close. Previously, he'd had a framed photo by his bedside, but his 17-year-old carer, Kia Tobin, worried that if it broke, it could hurt him. She surprised him instead with this imaginative solution, which he hugged as if his wife was once more beside him. The sight of a vulnerable pensioner being looked after with such kindness is another welcome and revealing glimpse behind the Covid curtain. Mr Bembo's gratitude for a memento of the woman he was married to for 71 years tugged the heartstrings. The gift, he said, had made him the happiest man in the world. It was an insight into someone's capacity for thankfulness despite his circumscribed situation and a tonic for those benighted with sadness or worry. Mr Bembo's joy is poignant and uplifting, as is Captain Tom's can-do attitude. His steadfastness and calm assurance that we will get through this come what may sets a gold standard for the way Britain likes to see itself, even if the reality sometimes falls short. Talk of the bulldog spirit has pugnacious overtones. Captain Tom seems to me to embody something gentler and more profound. Not bulldoggedness, but belief. Not blind faith, but optimism, founded on experience. He also has a natural fundraiser's fearlessness, as heard on his charity recording of You'll Never Walk Alone with Michael Boyle and the NHS Voices of Care Choir. A sentimental tearjerker? So what? More than most, Captain Tom will appreciate the need for mascots in dark months like these. It is a role he has almost accidentally taken on as people tune in to hear his grandfatherly advice and his conviction that eventually the sun will shine again. You might say that unusual times produce unlikely role models. In the case of the captain and the care home resident, and countless others of their generation with generous, outward-looking hearts. These are individuals who were already heroes. We just hadn't met them. You're listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded Thursday, 23rd of April, 2020. Opinion by Mark Smith, feature writer. Garden centres and DIY shops could reopen right now. So let's do it. There are three types of people in this crisis. Shovers, 
draggers and nudgers. The shovers want to push back against the rules and get back to normal quickly and are willing to take risks to get there. The draggers want to stay indoors until everything is 100% safe. And the nudgers think we should be taking small, logical steps back to normality as soon as we can. We could do with a lot more nudging. What I mean by that is there are shops and businesses that are still closed because of coronavirus that don't need to be closed and they're starting to get restless and rightly so. I've spoken to one or two of them and while some are more cautious than others, many believe they could safely reopen now and common sense says they're right. Garden centres, for example. I spoke to Adam McGowan, the general manager of McLaren's nurseries near Barhead, and he told me a bit about how they've been affected by the crisis. The staff at the nursery spend years nurturing their stock, but under lockdown, some plants have had to be dumped. Others may not survive much longer, and anyone who's a gardener will know how that feels. It's gutting, says Adam. The business model has also come under huge pressure. McLarens are still taking some orders over the phone while the nursery itself is close to the public and the drivers are doing 80 to 100 drops a day but there's no way deliveries can replace the business they would have had. There are lots of customers who can't get what they want and the business is losing potential profit. The thing is, there's no reason for it to go on like this. McLarens and other businesses like it could reopen tomorrow. Indeed, a handful of bigger B&Qs have reopened with social distancing in place. There's plenty of space at the McLaren site, more than 50 acres. But even smaller garden centres usually have plenty of space and big aisles. They could also, as supermarkets have done, introduce a one-way system and put up signs to remind people of social distancing. Following the same principles, there are other businesses that could open right away. DIY stores, bike shops, car dealers, even museums and bookshops, provided of course they had an upper limit in customers. Not only would it apply a couple of spark plugs to the economy, it would be good for the mental well-being of the people stuck at home 99% of the time. And although it might seem counterintuitive, allowing people to go out and buy plants and DIY supplies would also encourage them to stay at home more by giving them things to do while they're there. Not every business thinks this way, of course. I spoke to the owner of the hardware store Timber Mills in Cumnock, and he was cautious about reopening. Like everyone else, he's lost trade, but he thinks reopening too soon would end up costing more money in safety measures, PPE equipment for staff, and so on. He's also concerned customers coming back to the shop might lead to another spike in the virus, another lockdown and even a bigger hit to profits. Then there are the businesses who feel that even being allowed to reopen would not help at this stage. Sean Bythel, who owns the bookshop in Wigton, has seen positive signs in other countries. In Italy and Austria, bookshops and garden centres were among the first to reopen but he says the majority of his customers are retired, which means they'd be self-isolating anyway, even if he did reopen. And it doesn't end there. There's the added worry that the moment restrictions are lifted, Sean's business would no longer be eligible for government assistance. Not that he's received a penny so far. 
Listening to Sean talk about his experiences isn't easy, but other businesses that do feel that they could reopen safely should be allowed to do so. Adam at McLaren's told me the nursery could reopen tomorrow and do it safely, and he believes the vast majority of garden centres are in the same situation. So let them do it, and the shovers, draggers and nudgers will do their thing. The shovers will push the limits, but will be forced to obey the rules and social distancing. The draggers will stay at home for quite a bit longer. And the nudgers will get out and start shopping and feeling normal again. The point is that we cannot stay like this for much longer. We need the first relaxation, the first let up, the first nudge. You're listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Monday the 20th of April 2020. Opinion by Susan Swarbrick I haven't visited a hairdresser since December. I resemble a badger. After a month in lockdown, the nation is getting to grips with its roots, by which I mean we are starting to see the true hair colour of those fond of dyeing and bleaching. My own progress on that front is slightly ahead of the curve, in that I haven't visited my hairdresser since December. I'm rocking a vibe in the ballpark of brassy, ageing badger. Think Cruella de Vil meets whatever happened to baby Jane with a splash of 1995 era Alanis Morissette. The crux? It's a bit of a shambles, although in the grand scheme of things, this matters not a jot. To be honest, I'm a tad perplexed by the slew of DIY friseurs popping up on social media. Watching someone take a pair of scissors to their own fringe is akin to them sticking their head inside a lion's mouth. It seldom ends well. My hair is a basic dark brown, boringly straight, with what my hairdresser Eileen would call warm undertones. The redhead gene is strong on both sides of the family. As a toddler, I was blonde, became mousy brown as I got older, then progressively darker, coinciding nicely with my first grey hair appearing at the age of 24. I had a hard paper round. Almost 20 years later, there's a lot more grey glinting incongruously among the brown. Eventually, when it's all grey, I'll stop dying but I'm a neat freak and the two-tone look feels messy. That said, the one thing I fear is a box dye. In the wrong hands, it's the equivalent of using a paint roller and tin of emulsion to touch up a Renaissance masterpiece. Just as owning a hammer doesn't make me a joiner, brandishing hairdressing implements does, does not equate to being Vidal Sassoon. I still have nightmares about box dyes from my teens when I bought one in boots to transform my mousy tresses to a sleek blonde mimicking Kelly Taylor in Beverly Hills 90210. It went badly awry. When I tried to dye it brown again, it turned green. I resembled grot bags of Rod Hull and Emu fame. There's an Instagram hashtag, hashtag save your roots, that is asking people to hold off dyeing their locks during lockdown. It's a message about solidarity rather than vanity. Many hairdressers are self-employed and won't be earning as the government urges us all to stay at home and saves lives. They have bills to pay and food to put on the table. When they're finally able to return to work, we should support them. So whether it's six weeks or six months or even longer, I'll be saving my roots. Brace yourself, Eileen. This is going to be epic.
You're listening to the Herald Scotland. Recorded Monday the 20th of April 2020. Opinion by Gary Scott. I miss the pub and not just for the drink. Nostalgia is not what it used to be. Once it was fond memories of chopper bicycles and even Knievel wind-up toys. For older people, it might have been the Beatles or perhaps rationing. That warm blanket of nostalgia where there's no nasty surprises lurking in the darkness. But now, less than four weeks since the coronavirus lockdown squeezed the colour out of life, nostalgia is the simple things that happened last month, like going to work. In my case, in an actual office, not hunched over the dining room table surrounded by the detritus of breakfast. I miss, incredible as it seems, the office. I miss the people. I miss nipping to the shops and not having to allow 20 minutes to stand in the queue outside. I miss the pubs. Ah, pubs. I blame Rag McNeil, our Saturday and Sunday columnist. As we were talking on the telephone, he eschews video calls from Zoom, Teams or Skype, along with most other modern inventions, by the way. He mentioned a visit to the Air de Basser, formerly and slightly less romantically known as the Ardvasser Hotel, near his Sky Bungalow. This, I should point out in case the coronavirus cops get overexcited, was BC. That's before coronavirus. As he talked, I was transported to the Misty Isle, raising a drink to my lips, the kiss of a fine whisky slushing round my gob. I could almost taste it. Then I thought of a recent visit to the gate in Glasgow's gritty Gallagate, a night of beer and drams with my oldest friend, days before the pub shut. They were pleasant reveries, but more than that, they reminded me that so many folk rely on the demon drink for jobs. From bar staff to draymen to those in distilleries and bottling plants, the food and drink industry supports 120,000 jobs, according to the Scottish Government. You don't need me to tell you that pubs have an important place in our culture. They are, perhaps, the one place where we are all equal. Even Boris Johnson talked of the lockdown, taking away the ancient, inalienable right of freeborn people to go to the pub. Growing up in rural Scotland in the 1980s, the pub was still king. It was a community hub before people started talking about community. I remember bumping into my dad in a lockside pub. It was a bit tricky, as I was only 16 or 17, but he bought me a pint of 70 shilling and we had a chat. He's in hospital now, a shadow of himself. I can't visit, but if he ever gets out, I'll take him back to that pub. I think I owe him a pint. You're listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Tuesday the 21st of April 2020. Opinion. Issue of the day, Piers Morgan. An article by Russell Ledbetter. Piers Morgan. 7.3 million Twitter followers. Friend to President Trump. Co-presenter of Good Morning Britain. He's the kind of journalist who can make headlines as a matter of routine. He has now told CNN that Mr Trump has been failing the American people so far as the coronavirus pandemic is concerned. 
He and Boris Johnson have an apparent inability to seek from being populist politicians into being war leaders. They're still playing the old games of party politics. Could you elaborate on what he said about Donald Trump? With pleasure. I've known him a long time. I consider him to be a friend. But I've been watching these daily briefings with mounting horror. Frankly, because this is not what the President should be doing. Ouch. And you won't want me saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The President of the United States right now is an incredibly important person in the world, and not least to Americans, who are dying in their tens of thousands from a disease that we don't know much about yet. Take it he didn't stop there. Indeed. Morgan said a leader like Mr Trump needed to be calm, authoritative, honest and accurate, and empathetic. And on almost every level of that, Donald Trump at the moment is failing the American people. He's turning these briefings into a self-aggrandising, self-justifying, overly defensive, politically partisan, almost like a rally to him. Any truth in what he says? If you've watched any of Mr Trump's briefings, you'll realise, and this writer hates to say this, but Morgan is on the money. Piers Morgan, remind me. Gossip, showbiz writer at The Sun, edited the News of the World, then the Daily Mirror. Sacked from the latter for publishing pictures of British soldiers apparently abusing Iraqi civilians. Claims grew that the pictures were fake. The Express called the Mirror liars. Morgan's reaction. Being called a liar by that light is like being called a halfwit by the village idiot. In the end he was let go. And then? He'd already done lots of TV, but now he took to it with a vengeance. He was a judge on America's Got Talent and on Britain's Got Talent. He was one of the judges blown away by Susan Boyle's edition of I Have a Dream on Britain's Got Talent. Without a doubt, he told her, that was the biggest surprise I've had in three years of this show. Anything else? He presented a show on CNN. He's written a couple of books, The Insider and Don't You Know Who I Am, in both of which he name drops at a furious yet admittedly entertaining pace. Good Morning Britain too, of course, on which he plays the bad cop to Susanna Ree's long-suffering good cop. He positively thrives on controversy, but he's pretty good at it. You're listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Monday the 20th of April 2020. News. Issue of the day. The archers go down memory lane. An article by Maureen Sugden, reporter. It is the world's longest running drama series that enchants listeners with tales from the rural village of Ambridge. Now, The Archers is going down memory lane by re-airing classic episodes from the archives. What's the aim? The producers of the BBC Radio 4 drama say the episode's rebroadcast will feature important moments from the last two decades of the programme, giving new listeners new insight or simply offering a chance to reminisce. It comes as... Amid the fallout from the pandemic, it is taking longer than expected to produce new episodes. 
They are usually recorded weeks in advance of broadcast, meaning storylines have so far been unable to reflect the coronavirus crisis. Cut back. Temporary changes mean the show has been cut back to four episodes from six per week and a shorter weekend omnibus. Meanwhile, voice actors are recording the new episodes from their homes. And so, Memory Lane comes into play, with five archive episodes each week from May the 3rd to May the 24th. Week one focuses on key moments in characters' lives, with four weddings and a death included. Week two will look at moments when characters have had to leave or return to the homes and farms that mean so much to them. And week three is all about annual traditions such as the flower show. The show is a phenomenon. The radio soap was initially billed as an everyday story of rural life when it first took to the air in 1951 and within five years was attracting around 20 million listeners. Now, Ambridge is described as a 21st century village with all the pressures of modern rural life. And up to this month, there have been more than 19,200 episodes, making it the longest running drama in the world. With more than 5 million listeners, it is Radio 4's most listened to non-news programme. Famous fans? They include the Duke and Duchess of Rothsey, Stephen Fry, Ewan McGregor and Ian Rankin. Barrett Green? That's the name of the instantly recognisable jaunty theme tune written by Yorkshire composer Arthur Wood in the 1920s that Billy Connolly memorably suggested in his iconic 1980s ITV show, An Audience With, should become the new national anthem for a refreshing change. Soothing Sounds A spin-off episode was created for the BBC Sounds app last year, featuring no dialogue or storyline, just the soothing sounds of Ambridge life including the background noises of wind rustling through the trees and the lowing of cattle and rumblings of passing tractors. Archer's Secrets To recreate the sound of a lamb being born, the sound effect person squelches their hand in a yoghurt pot and then throws a damp tea towel onto the audio tape. Another sound recording trick used is to recreate the sound of a farm gate closing by swiftly collapsing an ironing board. As for the upcoming new episodes, episodes from May the 25th will reflect the coronavirus outbreak in Ambridge, with producers saying they want fans of the show to still be able to connect with the characters at this difficult time. Editor Jeremy Howe said, I think keeping the show running and giving us all an opportunity to hear from beloved characters will be a treat loyal listeners will want and need. You're listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Monday the 20th of April 2020. Opinion by Russell Ledbetter. Those were the days. Glamour and spectacle at the Alhambra. In December 1960, Glasgow's Alhambra Theatre took the Scottish pantomime in a bold new direction. The production, A Wish for Jamie, starring Kenneth McKellar, reflected the theatre's taste for innovation. Two years later, the Alhambra caused a stir with the opening of its Starlight Room 
a sophisticated remodelling of the staging that rivalled anything seen in London or Las Vegas. The Panto was written by John Hoare. Herald columnist Jack Webster wrote that he first came across law when the latter was working as a copy telephonist in this newspaper's building and choreographed by Peter Darrell, who would go on to become the first artistic director at Scottish Ballet. Howard and Wyndham boss Stuart Cruikshank, fulfilling an ambition to stage an all-Scottish panto, tossed a caber through the old weary panto routine and came up with a sparkling production that had the audience erupting in wild applause, wrote the Evening Times reviewer after the first night. A Wish for Jamie has the gloss of a slick review. A Disneyland of nursery rhyme characters for the kids. Scottish spectacle blown up to widescreen size. It's a show that could be subtitled How to Please Everybody. And it's a triumph for Kenneth McKellar, round whom the panto has been built. Playing Jamie, he's hardly ever off the stage and goes through a huge repertoire of Scottish songs. The Panto also stars Ricky Fulton, Faye Lenore, Reg Varney and Russell Hunter. There were pipers and drummers too, and at the end of the first half they marched down the aisle. In his History of the Alhambra, author Graham Smith said the debut Panto sold out its entire season in a space of two weeks. Jamie would run for years too. In May 1962, the entertainer Dickie Henderson sat in the theatre's front stalls, looked around him once again and said, London Palladium, Prince of Wales Theatre, Las Vegas. I've never seen a setting like this. By George, it's marvellous. Henderson and Glasgow's own Lena Martell were starring in Five Past Eight at the Starlight Room. The theatre stage had been reimagined at considerable expense. The Alhambra's 78-foot-wide stage now cascaded into the auditorium, writes Graham Smith. Britain had never seen anything like it before. The orchestra pit was removed and a glass apron stage with wide stairs lit from below tumbled into the stalls, being met by curved gilded stairs from new stages built in front of the boxes for singers and dancers. The stage was given a glossy non-slip black linoleum finish polished daily and looking like glass. True to its name, the Starlit Room had no fewer than 5,000 lights. The Herald reviewer noted that Martel sang, pleasantly, both alone and with a chorus. You're listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Tuesday the 21st of April 2020. Opinion by Russell Ledbetter. Those were the days. Princess Anne in Scotland, 1970 and 1971. The Commonwealth Games that ended in Edinburgh in July 1970 were voted the best yet by athletes, spectators and officials. They had been opened by the Duke of Edinburgh on the 16th of the month. The closing ceremony at Meadowbank was attended by the Queen and Princess Anne. The upbeat approach to the entire event was summed up by one joyous Kenyan athlete who declared, We have been living like lords for ten days. The Queen and her daughter watched as Scots runners Ian Stewart and Ian McCafferty came first and second in the 5,000 metres. At the closing ceremony, they were amused by the spectacle before them, 
athletes abandoning the traditional march paths to dance around the track, stage impromptu wheelbarrow races and throw flowers into the crowd. Afterwards, the Queen and the Princess were driven around the track as the spectators sang, Will you know come back again? One year later, Anne was back in Scotland at the opening of the £9 million Erskine Road Bridge over the Clyde. There was a background of reports and rumours of the bomb hoax type, reported the Glasgow Herald, but if the Princess knew about them, she did not show the slightest hint. She stood in an open Mandrover during the journey across the bridge and back by the ferry, waving and smiling to spectators. That same year, 1971, Anne, still only 21, became the first royal to be named Sports Personality of the Year, having won the individual title at the European Eventing Championship at Burley. Anne, the Princess Royal, turned 70 in August and Vanity Fair magazine marks the occasion in its latest issue by putting her on the cover under the strapline Royal Rebel. Inside, the article notes that though her 500 plus annual engagements are rarely covered by the press, she was, until her brother Charles eclipsed her by 15 engagements last year, Britain's most industrial royal. She represents some 300 charities and military organisations on a daily basis. It has often been observed that Anne inherited her father's famously sharp tongue and waspish wit, as Vanity Fair describes it. She once told photographers to naff off when they got under her feet. Yet she is not, despite what is often said about her, standoffish and cold. The Princess Royal is involved with many Scottish organisations, including the Scottish Rugby Union, of which she served as patron for many years. She sent both her children, Peter and Zara, to Gordonston in Elgin, where her father and brother had, been, had both been all boarders. In the article, incidentally, she mentions her admiration for the lighthouses built in Scotland by Robert Stevenson. How he built those lighthouses is just phenomenal. You're listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Wednesday the 22nd of April 2020. Opinion those were the days. Roddy McMillan, The Vital Spark and Beyond. An article by Russell Ledbetter. The great Scottish actor Roddy McMillan once had a role in a western, Chato's Land, which was filmed in the south of Spain. The film, directed by Michael Winner, starred Charles Bronson and Jack Palance. During the shooting, McMillan and visiting journalist David Gibson mastered the latter wrote, the artist sitting in absolute silence at a roadside cafe just watching the world go by. You can learn a lot just watching Sonny, Macmillan told him on that first morning. And, and after that, Gibson added, we just sat and looked. He was a man who had learned a lot by looking. Gibson recalled the encounter in 1979 when Macmillan passed away, aged just 56 a mere matter of weeks after he had been awarded an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours. Macmillan was best known, perhaps, for his role as Parahandy in The Vital Spark, but his range extended far and wide. He also played a Chandler-esque Glasgow private eye in The View from Daniel Pike, written by Edward Boyd. 
as well as Detective Inspector Chock Minty in the series Hazel. He also acted in and wrote for the stage. Two of his own plays were All in Good Faith and The Bevelers. The latter based on his days as an apprentice in a glass mirror works and which was screened in the BBC's Play for Today slot in November 1974. His CV also included a role in the 1950 film The Gobble Story, in which Johnny, a successful artist, remembers in flashbacks his life in the Gobbles. The script was adapted from a 1946 Robert McLeish play, staged by Glasgow's Unity Theatre, where Macmillan himself once acted. The Herald, reporting Macmillan's death, noted that an influence on his career had been the actor Duncan Macrae. When working as a schoolteacher, Macrae had taught the young Macmillan and had remained his mentor through early days at the Unity Theatre and the Citizens Theatre. In the first episodes of the BBC Scotland series, Macmillan played first mate to Macrae's Parahandy and was promoted to skipper upon Macrae's death. Among a host of meticulously observed and rounded out characters adapted from Lewis Grassic Gibbon and George Mackay Brown, the Herald added, his performance as Parahandy in The Vital Spark will always stand out. Farrick McLaren, the BBC Scotland's senior drama producer, said, There can only ever be one Roddy Macmillan. He was a unique talent, both as an actor and as a writer. There was a truthfulness about everything he did, which he brought to every part he played and to every character he created. The plays All in Good Faith and The Bevelers were, McLaren added, landmarks in Scottish dramatic history. You're listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Thursday the 23rd of April 2020. Opinion We need to talk honestly to resolve the new challenges by Alan McLaren for Agenda. Alan McLaren is a partner in the commercial property team at Lindsay's. If I could offer just one piece of advice to anyone involved in discussions about how they're affected by consequences of coronavirus, it would be this. Be straight with the person on the other side. The need for people to talk has never been greater only by working together can we get through the once almost unimaginable problems with which we're now faced. Putting your head in the sand is pointless. The COVID-19 outbreak has brought each of us different challenges. Facing up to these with a real world view and looking at the big picture will go a long way towards seeing us through to the other side. This applies as much to those in the world of commercial property, in which I work, as it does anywhere else. Tenants, and in turn landlords, will each undoubtedly face cash flow issues which will affect how they're able to do business. My colleagues and I operate in an environment where new coronavirus legislation means, means everything has changed. Yet nothing has changed. Where tenants used to have 14 days to settle any arrears of rent or service charges before a landlord can terminate a lease, they now have 14 weeks. We need to take a broader view, however, than simply what the law says. 
and every consideration has conversation at its core. The light bulb moment on this came for me while talking to colleagues in our employment team. As people's worlds turned upside down, there were employers who were worried about talking to employees about what was happening and employees who were terrified of raising queries about how they would be affected. Things improved as soon as they started talking. The same is true in commercial property. From what I am seeing, we have tenants who are waiting to hear from landlords and landlords who are waiting to hear from tenants. All the while, time is passing and few people are considering what they need to achieve as payment dates approach. Neither landlord or tenants want to end up in a legal dispute because that date is reached and payment's not possible. Nobody wins in that situation. Both sides need honest conversations. If a tenant fears they are going to run into problems paying rent, they need to say sooner rather than later. They're likely to get a more sympathetic ear if they do this rather than just stop payments. My experience is that most landlords are willing to talk. People appreciate being on the front foot. A major consideration for them, however, is if they can't have 12 months rent in the next year. Could they live with eight months or six months? If you've someone on a 10 year lease, would you rather have nine and a half years rent than lose an otherwise good tenant? Yet while I would advise landlords not to go in too hard, tenants need to not lay things on with a trowel. That will just sour relationships and store up problems down the line. It all comes back to honesty. It's in everyone's interest to do what we can to ensure the economy emerges from coronavirus as strongly as possible. It's all about people on opposite sides of the seesaw trying to find a balance. That's the same whether you're negotiating property or anything else in life at this time. But nothing can be fixed if people don't talk. Recorded from The Herald, 21st of April 2020. Hebb's chief, Leanne Dempster, warns a meteor is about to hit Scottish football as she pulls out of SPFL's reconstruction task force. Aidan Smith, sports writer. Leanne Dempster has warned that a meteor is heading for Scottish football and urged the game to get ready for a new normal when the country tries to move on from the deadly coronavirus pandemic. However, the Hibernian chief executive believes there should be no rush towards bringing the curtain down on the current campaign believing it could be brought to a climax in August before kicking off next season the following month. Dempster has relinquished her place on the SPFL's Reconstruction Task Force to instead play a part in the work to prepare for the resumption of football that has been announced by the Joint Response Group of Governing Body and the Scottish FA. She is hopeful Scottish football can learn from counterparts in countries such as Germany, but the process of coming out of COVID-19 is further down the line. But vowing to work with Scottish Government on areas such as closed-door games, she acknowledges there is a hard road ahead for clubs as they bid for survival in the face of the financial fallout of the global health emergencies. We are fighting two fights at the minute, she said. We are fighting on the health front for ourselves and our families. The nation is doing that. And then you are fighting for the survival of your clubs, your colleagues, the supporters. I'm not underestimating how difficult this is going to be, 
It really is the biggest challenge that has faced the game. We don't know how exactly long it is going on for, so we need to plan for a couple of eventualities. The Joint Response Group is linked directly into government, and that relationship is a strong one. The Response Group has fed information back to clubs in a timely manner. And we're not challenging government, we're not challenging health officials. We need to prepare ourselves for every opportunity and every eventuality. We can see the impact social distancing is having, not only on the virus, but everybody's lives. There are some new normals at the minute, and there will be a new normal for football. We need to figure out what that is. If we sit back and wait to find out what that is, it will be whatever somebody tells us is, as opposed to working together and agreeing on something. It might be that if we face a scenario where we don't have fans in the stadium until we have a vaccine, that may well ultimately be the case. But we need to do everything we can to find other options. That needs to be evidence-based. We need to find out things, talk to colleagues. I don't think we should sit back and wait to be told what to do. We need to forge our own way, but do it in a way that is safe. Nobody is going to try something that isn't safe. While Dempster is concentrating on the next practical steps for Scottish football, Others busy themselves trying to find a reconstruction plan that will satisfy enough clubs or seek an independent investigation into the actions of the SPFL during the vote on their resolution. Dempster has refused to get drawn on the latter and insists any new league structure must be based on what is the best for the game in the long term and not simply a stopgap solution to the current issues with relegation and promotion. If I'm honest, she added, I think because there has been so much focus on disagreements and because I've been focusing on these other issues, also because I've had a bit of a ringside seat, if you like, because I'm at the club and we see a lot of the information, I haven't given it, an investigation, any significant thought. But at this time, for me, the efforts of the Scottish game should be looking at the meteor which is about to hit us. We're open-minded to lead reconstruction, but would have been a reconstruction that is progressive and looked at the opportunities in the game over the next five or ten years, not something that is rushed or temporary. We believe the biggest issue facing the game in Scotland is not reconstruction, it's getting our whole game back up and running. The club's position, as it has been discussed at board level, is it would have to be a solution that is good for the game as a whole, is not short term and something that could unite the game behind it. It has to be genuinely innovative, and not just a quick fix for one season. Meanwhile, Dempster is also taking a long-term view on the thorny issue of whether the Premiership needs to follow the leagues below in being called. There is a chance of finishing the season, and we need to be open-minded, she went on. If we were just to say it's not happening, we're not giving ourselves a chance. It's going to be hard, we won't pretend otherwise, but there is no requirement for us to be making decisions now, to call it now. We've got some time. It would be too quick to do so. Things are changing all the time and we need to give it every opportunity. If you're not going to have people in the stadium anyway, why would you be absolutely barreling towards starting next season on the 1st of August or whenever? It might be that you've got some time. The other argument is that this season has been really difficult and why would you take that difficulty into next season? I think it's also becoming evident that we're taking difficulties into next season anyway. Could you delay the start of next season and condense it over a shorter period of time? For example, you could start the new season in September. These are just questions to be asked. We shouldn't conclude the season now until we've exhausted all possibilities. The Herald, Wednesday the 22nd of April 2020. News. Keir Starmer accuses UK government of being repeatedly slow 
in its response to pandemic at First Digital PMQs. This article is by Michael Settle. The UK government has been accused of being slow to respond to the coronavirus crisis as Dominic Raab faced questions on testing and protection for NHS and care workers in his Prime Minister's questions clash with Sir Keir Starmer. The new Labour leader and Foreign Secretary Mr Raab deputising for Boris Johnson as the Prime Minister continued his recovery from COVID-19 faced each other in a sparsely attended House of Commons as the majority of MPs participated remotely. Sir Keir questioned the government's progress towards its target of carrying out 100,000 tests a day by the end of the month and claimed that opportunities to acquire personal protective equipment, PPE, from British firms had been missed. He said, there is a pattern emerging here. We were slow into lockdown, slow on testing, slow on protective equipment and now slow to take up these offers from British firms. Mr Rabb told him that the government was guided by scientific advisers. He said that if Sir Keir thinks he knows better than they do with the benefit of hindsight, then that's his decision. Mr Rabb said 8,000 British businesses had responded to a call for assistance on PPE and they had all received a response, with some 3,000 followed up where it was sensible if they had equipment with the required specification and volume. He said it was an incredibly difficult and competitive international environment to source PPE from overseas. On testing, the latest figures showed that less than half of the available capacity was being used and fewer than 20,000 tests had been carried out in a 24-hour period. Sir Keir questioned how the government would ramp that up to 100,000 tests a day in just eight days' time, particularly as some care workers and NHS staff could only be tested if they could drive to a site. UK ministers have repeatedly insisted the target will be met and Mr Rabb insisted that those tests will be crucial, not just in terms of controlling the virus, but allowing the country to move to the next phase. He said mobile labs were now being used, with the army also helping to get tests to where they were needed. Mr Rabb told MPs Mr Johnson continued to recover from coronavirus at Chequers and was in good spirits. In other developments... An RAF plan landed at Breeze Norton from Turkey in the early hours of Wednesday after being sent to collect a shipment of PPE, including badly needed surgical gowns. The government continued to face questions about its participation in EU schemes to secure vital equipment with Brussels saying there had been ample opportunity for the UK to join in. More than 70 frontline NHS staff were confirmed to have died during the coronavirus pandemic. Professor Robin Shattuck from Imperial College's Department of Infectious Diseases said a coronavirus vaccine may be available for frontline workers and the most vulnerable by late winter. Cancer Research UK warned that more than 2,200 new cancer cases could be going undetected each week as fewer people go to see their GP and also due to practitioners' reluctance to send patients to hospital due to the risk of COVID-19 infection. Labour said 36 companies had approached them to claim that offers of help to supply PPE had been ignored. These include ISA Exchange Limited in Birmingham, which said it offered a quarter of a million aprons and masks, Network Medical Products in Ripon, which says it can provide 100,000 face visors per week, and CQM Learning, which says it can provide 8,000 face shields per day. This article is by Michael Settle.
The Herald, Friday the 24th of April 2020. News. Marches in support of Scottish independence postponed to next year amid pandemic. This article is by L. Duffy. Marches in support of Scottish independence have been postponed until next year to combat the spread of the coronavirus. All under one banner, who organise popular marches across Scotland, say that all events planned for this year will no longer take place in 2020. They had planned to march in Glasgow on May the 2nd, Peebles on June the 6th, Elgin on July the 4th, Kirkcaldy on August the 1st, Stirling on September the 12th and Edinburgh on October the 3rd. In a tweet, they stated, Due to the recent Scottish Government report, it's clear that mass gatherings are unlikely able to take place for the foreseeable future. As such, we hereby announce that all AUOB 2020 planned marches are now postponed until 2021. We wish everyone the very best in these challenging times. The report published by the Scottish Government yesterday gave more guidance on large gatherings and public events. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said group gatherings, for example in pubs or at public events, were likely to be banned or restricted for some months to come. She also said some form of shielding would be required for the foreseeable future, as well as stronger surveillance for those coming into the country. The group says that these measures are relevant to their own plans, and so all planned 2020 marches have been cancelled. They had previously vowed to hold a massive march in Glasgow once the coronavirus lockdown is over. This article is by L. Duffy. Well, that concludes part two of the Herald Scotland for the week ending the 24th of April 2020. Believe it or not, there is now a part three. Yes, you're getting a part three this week. So please go back to Gasbox and listen in.